Good day, everyone. As Troy said before, we're going to have a question time tonight. I've had lots of uh, good discussions with people the last few weeks with things that have come up in John's Gospel. So if you've got questions you think might be worth asking, keep them for then. But now I'm going to pray before we look at this passage together. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the joy and privilege it is to be able to look at it together. Uh, But we pray as we look at a difficult passage tonight that we will treat it as your word, uh, that we will let it judge us, not us stand in judgment over it, and that we'll let it do its work in us of convicting us, changing us, encouraging us, and all those things that your word does for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Around this time of year, uh, I feel a bit sorry for all the school teachers I know because they've got to uh, write report cards and they've got to come up with original comments or I always wonder if they just press press F6 and get the comment and that's the thing. Joe's nodding at me, but there you go. Uh, But uh, I remember when I was at school, I think I've shared this with you before, my favourite ever report card comment was Year 9 Woodwork, uh, when the teacher said, on my report card, it is just as well Phil is good at maths. That was the comment, because we didn't have to say the next half, Phil is hopeless at woodwork. And if you've ever been beside me at a church working bee, you know that's true. Uh, I'm hopeless at that sort of thing. Uh, in fact, my father said to me at one point, you better earn a lot of money to pay people to do these jobs because you can't do them yourself. And now I'm a minister. So there you go. Uh, my favourite, though, supposed report card comment, I say supposed because I found it by looking on the internet, is this one. Uh, Johnny sets very low expectations and consistently fails to meet them. Isn't that a great comment? I love that comment. I think that's tops. Johnny aims low and flies even lower. You you know, I just think that's excellent. Uh, But I say that because having realistic expectations is actually really, really important. If you think about it, you don't lose heart. You don't get disappointed just because bad things happen to you or, or good things don't happen to you. It's more than that. You get disillusioned when you expect something better and it doesn't happen. Or when people have promised you more and then they don't deliver. Kids don't get disappointed because they don't get to go to the movies every Saturday. They get disappointed when dad promises them we're going to the movies on Saturday and then they don't go. I'm speaking from personal experience at this point. Uh, But it's the same in the Christian life. Sadly, sometimes, all too often, frankly, Christians are given unrealistic expectations in this life. That if you just believe in Jesus, if you just follow Jesus, everything will go well for you, everything will work out, you will be blessed in this life. So then when bad things happen, when things don't work out, when struggles come, they blame God and they say, God, you you haven't delivered what you promised. Or or they doubt their faith, maybe my, my faith has not been strong enough if that's what God said he would give me. But the problem was actually never with God and it was never with their faith It was that they were given unrealistic, actually untrue expectations for this life. They were made promises that God does not make his children. Jesus wants us to have realistic expectations for the Christian life because he doesn't want us to lose heart and give up. He doesn't want us to then miss out on the blessing God does promise us, the blessing of eternal life, because we think God is not faithful. See, so far in John's Gospel, Jesus has given his disciples and he's given, a, given us a wonderful picture of the blessings we have in following him. So just for a moment, just sort of in your mind, think about the blessings you have in Christ. Think, what, what are some of the blessings you have? 
And I hope, first of all, you think, I have the blessing of eternal life. That's the big one, isn't it? We have forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus, which means we will not face the condemnation of God that we deserve. And instead, we have eternal life with Him. More than that, we have a place prepared for us. You remember just a couple of chapters ago, Jesus has gone to prepare us a place in God's house. So we have a place prepared for us in God's kingdom where we will live forever with God. And when we are there, there will be no more pain and there'll be no more suffering and there'll be no more crying and there'll be no more mourning. And most wonderfully, there will be no more sin. That is, we will not mess it up. It will be perfect. And we have absolute certainty that we will be there because it's not up to us. That's one of the greatest blessings of all. We have absolute certainty that we will be there because Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid the price for our sin. You're not there because you're good enough. You're there because you simply trust in Jesus who is good enough. That is the Christian hope. That is the blessing you have if you're a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? No one thinks so. That's a bit disappointing. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Wake up, everyone. Come on. Incredibly, our hope is not just in the future. See, sometimes you think, yeah, yeah, that's the hope in the future, but now we just sort of get on with it. Uh, No, no, no. It is not just suffer now for blessing later. To use the old phrase, not just pie in the sky when you die, it's steak on your plate while you wait. God blesses you now, just not in the ways people often say he does. See, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just think of the blessings you have now. You can call God your father now because you have been adopted, chosen to be his child. You are forgiven now. You you have that certainty of salvation right now. I mean, just in the last couple of chapters of John, just flick back over the last couple of chapters, 13, 14, 15 there, we've seen some of these blessings. We've seen how we have God's Holy Spirit. The literal presence of God lives in us and works in us now. We have Jesus interceding for us in the heavens so that we can pray to God and we know that he will do what is best for us according to his will Now we have the gift of prayer. We have the incredible privilege, last week's passage, of actually being included in God's plans for the world. You might think this is a blessing, but I think it's one of the most wonderful blessings of all. If you are connected to Jesus, we saw last week, you will bear fruit for him. Isn't that a blessing? God doesn't have to include us in his plans, but he says, I want you to be the means by which I bless the world so you can bear fruit, the fruit of godliness, the fruit of love, most importantly, the fruit of people hearing the gospel and being saved. We have every spiritual blessing now. But if Jesus had just left it there, then our picture of the Christian life would be totally optimistic. And it is optimistic because that is all true and it's all wonderful and we must never forget it. But then comes chapter 15, verse 18. Look with me. Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. And at that point, we say, hang on a minute, hates me? I didn't sign up for that. Jesus did not want his disciples, he didn't want you and me, he didn't want us to have unrealistic expectations. He wants us to be ready for what the Christian life is actually like. And the Christian life is not easy. 
Yes, Jesus wants you to know the wonderful joy and the wonderful comfort and the wonderful blessing you have as his disciple. But he also wants you to know that living as a Christian in this world will be difficult, really hard sometimes. And he wants us to know that because otherwise, when opposition does come, we get taken by surprise. When the struggles start, we doubt God and we might give up. Look at how he puts it in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. When he says stumbling there, he's not trying to prevent us having a little trip or, or a little hiccup. The word there is the word for falling away. He's saying, I am getting you ready for this so that when it happens, you don't give up on me and miss out on the greatest blessing of all of eternal life. Sadly, this is the opposite of what often passes for Christian teaching today. Too often, Christians today are taught that life will be easy if you trust Jesus. Sermons are basically self-help guides. It's as if the Bible is there to, to help you flourish in this world. I meet too many people who say they used to be Christians, but when I press them and when I actually push them, the Jesus they rejected was not the Jesus of the Gospels. It was a self-help Jesus, a Jesus who helps you thrive in this world so when they then don't thrive and when they don't flourish even though they think they're following Jesus they walked away well Jesus does not want that for you Jesus knows if you tell people things like that that will only lead to disillusionment that's all it will do we need to have the full picture we need to be ready for the real struggles of living for Jesus Yes, we have all those blessings in Christ, and I hope you never forget that, and no one in their right mind would ever swap the blessings for anything else. But there is a cost, and you need to know there is a cost. There is a cost in following Christ in this world. And the particular cost he's talking about in John chapter 15 is being hated by this world. So what does he mean when he says, if the world hates you? Well, first of all, who is the world? Very simply, the world is all people who do not accept Jesus. The world is all people who do not follow Jesus. Jesus divides humanity into two groups. There's no middle group. There's just two groups. Jesus divides people. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So on the issue of salvation, on the issue of who is in the people of God, there are no shades of grey. You either follow Jesus and you have eternal life or you are in the world and you don't. Jesus doesn't break things up into all the other different subcategories like human beings do. It's not Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, militant atheist, apathetic Aussie, militant questioning. It's just Christian, saved, world, not. And then he says, the world will hate the followers of Jesus. So what does he mean by hate? Because the thing is, and I'm sure you're the same, I have lots of non-Christian friends and family and they quite like me. At least I think they do, they don't tell me they don't. They think I'm strange, they think I'm some sort of fundamentalist zealot, uh, they don't understand the way I live, but they don't hate me. So what is Jesus meaning? He is not meaning that every person who is not a Christian will hate every person who is a Christian at every point in time. He's not meaning that. He does mean, though, that when you share the gospel, people will not like it and they will shoot the messenger. 
See, the thing is, sadly for many Christians, that does mean facing physical violence. You see, we have to understand, we are not typical. Christians living in 2019, modern Sydney, are not typical. We are living in this strange moment of history where we are still on the tail end of a Christianized culture. Our situation is not normal throughout history and our situation is not normal in the world today. The first disciples, the hate was physical. As they preached the gospel, 11 of them were killed. 11 of the 12. The only one who survived to old age was John and he survived in prison. Because that's what the world did to people who preached the gospel. And sadly, it's the same for many Christians still in many countries of the world. The secular press don't report this. You don't read it in the Herald. You don't see it on the Channel 2 News. Christians are the most persecuted group on earth still. More people die... In 2019, more people die for saying, I am a Christian, than for any other cause in the whole world. Christians are still the most persecuted group on earth. Go to Iran, or go to Saudi Arabia, or go to the north of Nigeria, or even China at the moment, and get up on a street corner and preach the gospel, and see what happens to you. For other Christians, it's been economic persecution. Go to Pakistan and be a Christian. If you go to Pakistan and be a Christian, you are by definition the poorest of the poor. You will not have the opportunity to be in the government, you won't have the opportunity to run a business, you'll be the poorest of the poor. For some, it's social exclusion. For all Christians, at some point, it's being mocked, it's being belittled, it's being excluded from worldly opportunities. But the point Jesus is making is that ultimately the world will not love you, even if we have it better than people in those other countries. Ultimately, if you stand with Him, the world will not love you and accept you. That's the reality. You will meet opposition. People must respond negatively to you if you follow Jesus. Now, I don't claim to be a prophet, uh, but the reality is I pray for the generation who are most represented in this congregation at our church. Because I think in the next 10 years, normal Christians, school teachers, airline workers, people who work for banks, are going to start losing their jobs, or at least have the choice, am I willing to lose my job rather than deny Jesus? When their employers demand that they affirm moral standards that a Christian can't affirm, it's not just rugby players and tennis greats, who the worldly powers are going to start demanding sign off on their anti-Christian agenda. That is the future in Australia. So we have to be ready for it. But back to our passage. The question is why? Why does Jesus say that the world will hate his followers? Well, there's several reasons he gives in this passage, but the main overarching one is it's because the world hated Jesus first. That's why. It's nothing personal. It's the man we follow who the world doesn't like. My family moved around a lot when I was growing up and so I uh, changed schools more times than I can count Uh, and sometimes I was only at a school for like two or three months at a time and then we'd have to go to a new place, Uh, not because I got kicked out although anyway, Uh, but there was one school I was only there for three months and I hated every day of it because I was in a fight every morning tea and every lunchtime and I didn't start one of them, it was all because on the first day I walked in I walked in and looked around and there was one guy sitting on his own and I thought I was only in like year five or something I thought I'll go and sit with this guy let's call him Ian just in case he listens to the podcast that's not his real name 
so I made friends with him and he was a nice enough guy but there was this big group of other guys who for some reason hated Ian and that meant because I was friends with Ian they didn't care anything about me. it didn't matter anything what it was nothing to do with me at least I tell myself that <laughs> they just wanted to fight every morning tea and lunchtime it didn't matter I was with Ian and they didn't like Ian well it is like that with Jesus if you're with Jesus well the world hates Jesus just look again from verse 18 it says if the world hates you understand that it hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own however because you are not of the world but I've chosen you out of it the world hates you you see the point Jesus is making See, if you were just like them they wouldn't hate you but because they hate me and you're with me they'll hate you I've chosen you out of the world you belong to me now you don't belong to them and if you're with Jesus why would you expect something better than what the world did to Jesus and that's the point he makes at verse 20 look there he says remember the word I spoke to you a slave is not greater than his master his point is if I'm the master and you're my servant well if they crucified me why do you expect that you'll get better treatment he says if they persecuted me they will also persecute you now as confronting and scary as this is I actually think it's sort of comforting as well because Jesus is saying remember it's nothing personal remember it's not you they hate it's your master but that still leaves the question of why why does the world hate Jesus it just doesn't seem logical Jesus never hurt anyone in fact the opposite he was known for healing people he was known for calling on people to love one another he was encouraging everyone to to love even their enemies why does the world hate him well the answer is really very simple it's because Jesus exposes our sin that's why the world hates Jesus Jesus makes us realize I'm not a good person who deserves God's blessing Jesus shows us that we're guilty of rejecting God and ignoring him the Pharisees didn't hate Jesus because he did miracles they didn't hate Jesus because he healed people they hated him because he said despite all your religion you are a sinner who needs God's forgiveness and they hated him because he said I alone am the way to find God and his forgiveness every other way is a dead end that offends people the gospel offends people and if you preach the gospel you are telling people that they are sinners who need forgiving and if they refuse to believe it that offends people one of the key images we've seen all through John's gospel is that Jesus is the light shining into the darkness of the world well for people like you and me I hope like you who listen to Jesus and believe we love the light we think Jesus is wonderful even though he exposes our sin even though we look at ourselves in the light and say yes I'm a sinner I deserve God's judgment we then say but I've been forgiven through the death of Jesus Jesus has washed me clean but the world if you don't believe they say who turned on that light let me get out of the light don't tell me I need forgiveness I'm I'm good enough myself don't tell me there's a God who I need to give account to don't tell me that I can't do what I want with my body don't tell me that I'm not a good person that's what the world says so the world hides from the light and throws rocks at the light and, and tries to get away from the light or mocks the light or just tries to ignore the light anything rather than have its sin exposed and of course it then does exactly the same thing 
to people who dare to shine the light of Jesus on them. That's the point Jesus is making in verse 22, look there. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. That's a tricky verse, isn't it? I'm sure you've already grappled with it in your gospel team or you will on Wednesday night, but uh, Jesus can't be saying people did not sin and deserve God's judgment before he came, because that would be to deny everything else he's already said in John's gospel and deny everything the Old Testament says. I think the point he's making is now that he has come, now there are no shades of grey anymore. Now no one can say, but what about? There is no excuse anymore because the essence of sin is to reject the God who created us. That's the heart of all sin, is to reject God. And God has now revealed himself finally and completely and fully in his Son. God has shined his light into the world. And so if people reject Christ, then that's it. There's nothing else. Their guilt is final. Because if we reject Christ, we have rejected God at his most clear. There's no further revelation to come. And so when people reject the person who's telling them about Jesus, they're not rejecting you, they're actually rejecting God. That's who they're rejecting. Look at verse 21. He says, But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. See the way it works? They reject us, the messengers. But when they do that, it's not us they're rejecting, they're rejecting Jesus. But even worse than that, they're rejecting the one who sent Jesus, which is God the Father. Which means now, the world has no excuse for its sin. And with all that in mind, I want to draw out some concluding points for us. And you'll see them printed there on your outline. The first is, notice the word if. Go back to verse 18. There's an if there at the start. It says, if the world hates you. Now, there was no if for Jesus. He didn't get a choice in the matter. Why is there an if for us? Two reasons, I think. Firstly, and this is so important because I've, this passage is focused on the negative, if you like. But we must never forget, many will hear the good news and be saved. The Apostle Paul tells us the gospel divides people. And he says, to some, it is the stench of death. But then he says, to others, it is the aroma of life. To those being saved. The gospel is wonderful news. Just because many reject it, don't ever forget, the gospel is the most wonderful news. Jesus is our wonderful saviour, if you see the reality of your sin. Yes, some, even many, will respond negatively, but never forget that others will be like you were when you heard the gospel. And I'm sure when you heard the gospel and believed, you thought, how wonderful is this person who has shared it with me? Well, in the same way as we share the gospel, yes, the world will hate us, but people who are convicted of its truth will say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But I think there's another sense of if here, and that is the world will only hate us if we stand up with Jesus. See, for modern Western Christians like us, I think there's an obvious question this passage should make us ask, and that is, Why don't we suffer more? Why don't we suffer more? Why has this current focus on freedom of religion and so forth taken us so much by surprise? In one sense, we should just thank God and say, well, it's wonderful because it's a product of our Christianised culture. There's nothing noble in desiring to be persecuted. 
But in another sense, I think it should make us look at ourselves as a church and individually and ask some questions. Do we not meet more opposition because we actually don't speak? Do we not meet more opposition because we don't speak clearly enough? Do we not suffer because we're not testifying? Do we stay silent about Jesus when the difficult questions come up in our workplace or at uni or at school or wherever we are? Do we stay silent about Jesus at those family dinners and pretend that we're going to take the opportunity next time it comes? Would we rather not rock the boat? See, I find verse 19, one of the most challenging verses in the Bible, look at it. It says, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Just sort of put that round the other way, think about that a little. Doesn't that mean if the world loves us and respects us, then maybe that says something about us. If we're loved by the world rather than hated by the world, that might just be that we look a lot like we belong to this world. People can't see any difference between us and everyone else. If the way we relate to people is no different to the way everyone else relates, if the way we conduct ourselves is no different to the way everyone else conducts themselves, if the way we make our decisions and use our money and use our time and use our homes is no different to everyone else, if the way we speak about moral issues is no different to anyone else, then of course the world will not hate us. They'll say, you're no different to us, we love you because you're just part of the world. But I want to challenge you tonight, if you hear Jesus properly, if we hear his call to be radical disciples, if we hear his call to live sacrificial lives serving him, we hear his call in particular to testify about him and preach his gospel to our world, then no one will ever think you belong to this world. If we stand out from the world, if we expose the sin of the world by our godliness of life and as we preach the gospel, we will experience opposition. See, as a Christian, you make a choice every day. Will I stand with Jesus or will I just blend in with the world? If you stand with Jesus, you will face opposition. But, and my next conclusion, we have to be careful that we're being hated only for the name of Christ. Sometimes I meet Christians who tell me they are suffering for the gospel and uh, I have to gently point them out to them, they're suffering because of who they are. They're suffering because they're arrogant, they're suffering because they're rude, they're suffering because they lack grace and gentleness. We need to be careful that you don't use Jesus' words to justify your ungodliness. We need to make sure we stand firm for Jesus, but at the same time always show grace and gentleness and love for people. And that's really, really important, but I want to say, I don't think that is the majority of Christians I know. I think for most Christians, actually, we are gracious, we are gentle, our problem is with the standing firm for Jesus bit. There might be a small minority of people here who I need to have a separate sermon for later on, but for the majority of us, the challenge is not being gracious and gentle, the challenge is speaking up. I think we need to see that part of the world's hatred will mean if you share the word of Jesus on moral issues in particular, if you share the word of Jesus, when our world disagrees, they will call you unloving. They will call you graceless. They will call you whatever phobic. They will call you judgmental. They will say that you are not following Jesus. It doesn't matter how gentle you are and how gracious you are, when you speak against the world's hobby horses, 
And at the moment, that's when you teach Jesus' view of gender, that's when you call homosexual practice a sin, that's when you talk about the reality of hell, you will be called unloving. The test is not whether the world calls you unloving. Just because someone calls you that doesn't mean you are. In fact, do you know the main way our modern world expresses its hatred for Jesus? By distorting his gospel and telling Christians it's unloving to share the truth of his word. By saying Jesus is actually just preaching a message of bland, unchallenging love. That's not the gospel. That's how they hate Jesus. By distorting his message and saying that it's unloving to preach it. Which brings me to my final point. You might think, well, who am I then ever to speak up for Jesus? Phil, you've taught me out of ever evangelizing. How could I ever have the courage to do that? Well, look from verse 26. It says, when the counsellor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, in the first instance, this is talking to the apostles those first disciples, because they were the ones who were with Jesus from the beginning and it was their job to testify to the world about what they had seen and heard. But we too are called to testify by sharing the message the apostles have shared with us in the Scriptures. But the great comfort here is when you testify, you're not doing it alone. As we preach the Gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work and He is convicting people of its truth and leading them to faith. And if we follow Jesus' instructions, if we share him and his message, then we will see those wonderful moments where people come to faith and find salvation. We'll see those incredible miracles where people move from darkness to light as they turn and trust in Jesus. But that's not all we'll see. We will also meet opposition. Sometimes friends will not want to know us anymore. Sometimes family will disown us. Sometimes we'll miss out on what is rightfully ours. We might even lose our job. Sometimes we'll be hated. But if that is for the name of Christ, if I experience those things for the name of Christ, and I pray if you experience those things for the name of Christ, I hope you will say, what do they matter compared to the blessings I have in Him, first of all? What do they matter? What does it matter if the world doesn't like me, if I know I have eternal life in Jesus? If I know I have the blessing of God's forgiveness, what does it matter? And more than that, I hope you will say, what a privilege to be hated for the name of Jesus. See, when the apostles, when you read the book of Acts, when they were first persecuted, when they first started getting killed for preaching the gospel, they went back to their Christian brothers and sisters rejoicing. And that's what they said. They said, what a privilege to be honoured enough to suffer for the name of Jesus. And I pray that we might have the same attitude. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy it is to know the incredible blessing of knowing Jesus. And we thank you that we have every spiritual blessing in Him most wonderfully, the gift of eternal life. But Father, we thank you also that Jesus is honest with us and gives us realistic expectations about what this world will be like. And we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in our world who are facing persecution that we cannot even contemplate. We pray that they will stand firm for Jesus and keep trusting him even as people are put to death for the name of Christ. But for ourselves, Father, we pray that we will not be put off when the world responds negatively to the preaching of the gospel. Instead, help us to keep following Jesus, keep trusting him and keep proclaiming his gospel.
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.